0: Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our fifth series, we'll be talking about rhythm, how it forms in us, how we carry it and where it can lead us. I
1: found a nice quote. Would you like it? From Edward Hirsch, who's an American poet. And he says rhythm creates a pattern of yearning and expectation, of recurrence and difference. It is related to the pulse, the heartbeat, the way we breathe. It takes us into ourselves. It takes us out of ourselves. It differentiates us. It writes us into the cosmos. That's lovely, isn't it?
0: That is gorgeous. Yeah. It was the first days of spring when I spoke to forward prize-winning poet Fiona Benson. She talked to me about the itinerant rhythms of growing up in an RAF family, of boarding school, academia, the pleasure now of a settled life in rural Devon, and how they have shaped her poetry, her language, her metre. I think, like
1: most children, I came across language in lots of different forms, like songs at school, and prayers as well, and stories as well as Little bits of poetry here and there. So I think I was always in love with language. I don't think there was one blinding moment when I thought of poetry. Although I did kind of fall in love with Seamus Heaney pretty hard in sixth form. That was that was quite a turning moment for me. Yeah, I think I think there's something very slow and inevitable about it all. How did the Heaney love come about? Oh, well, that was one of our A level texts. Wintering out. I had an amazing English teacher called Dr. Hansen who. really kind of gave me poetry in a way and Wintering Out's got some beautiful poems actually from the perspective of or about women's life in Northern Ireland so it's got a poem called Limbo which is about a woman who um, drowns her newborn baby but Heaney does it so with so much sympathy it's a really beautiful poem that was a real moment
0: for me reading that poem when you say that your teacher at sixth form gave you poetry in a way, in what in what way? How did that happen? Oh, she was lovely. Well, she is lovely. She's called Dr. Hanson. And um, she was always really supportive of me. I think I was
1: quite a lonely little thing in school <laughs> and um, she was always very encouraging you know, I wasn't one of those people that's good at everything. I was just good at English and art, really. And um, she really encouraged me. And when we were writing about poetry, she would say, oh, you're, you're so good at writing about poetry. And <laughs> she just really kind of permitted me and made me feel confident about it.
0: What was it about poetry that was different for you at that age from plays or novels?
1: Well, I think for me, poetry has always been a very intense moment of language and I think I really respond to that so um, it has a real emotional hit and you're doing a lot in a short space of time. Anne Carson's got this lovely line in um, Red Dock which says prose is like a house on fire, po- poetry is a man running quite fast through it <laughs> and I think I really like that idea, a poem you're kind of legging it through fire.
0: <laughs> That's wonderful, I love that um you grew up in Wiltshire is that right?
1: No (laughs)
0: sorry no. That's uh, a lie I've read on the internet. That is a big lie. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you grow up?
1: Uh, I am an REF kid so uh, I grew up Ah. in a different place every year. I was born in Wiltshire and I have visited it once and it was lovely but I had to ask my parents where I was born when I when I came to apply for a passport because I didn't know. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> wow. So that's a strange rhythm to grow up with, moving every year as an RAF kid. Yeah. What did that feel like?
1: Honestly, horrible. It's horrible moving every year. Eventually, we went to we were sent to boarding school, and that's why forces kids get sent to boarding school because it's very disruptive. So, if you're moving every year when you're very little it's kind of okay because you're very adaptable but as you get older it gets much harder it gets much harder to integrate and that was becoming a real battle and the story is that i i in particular was becoming very quiet i wasn't really speaking anymore <laughs> so uh i think it yeah i think it's really difficult for kids especially moving schools and um, always having the wrong voice because you've adapted to the accent of the last school and um, they weren't small moves. They weren't just within the UK. My first school was in Denmark in an international school that had 19 students. So there were nine in my class. And then I came across to the UK and then there were 32 in my class. So, yeah, very disruptive, very uh, unsettling, very frightening, actually. I'm Yeah, it's not a good rhythm, I don't think, to be disrupted like that. I've lived here the longest I've lived anywhere and it's lovely. I really like the sense of community that you're able to grow if you stay somewhere for a long time. I like that I recognise people in the village and that they know me and they know who my kids are. You know, my kids go to have gone to the same school
0: all their lives. So they've never known any different. I think that's amazing. I'm really interested in what you said about accent and also about silence and how you became very quiet Were you aware of becoming quiet and where did you go in those moments?
1: Yeah, I was aware of being quiet. Um, I was very frightened to speak. And very frightened of saying the wrong thing all the time. I think I still have that fear of saying the wrong thing um, and getting into trouble for saying the wrong thing. But I think poetry is a space where I can break through from that and just say (laughs) whatever I want. Yeah. I mean, accent, it's a funny thing. So my mum is Scottish, actually. So my first accent was Scottish. And then um, my father, who had been very busy at work, was at home more. And I took his accent. And so that was, (laughs) my mother wasn't very happy with that. Yeah. And then there were different accents with different schools, just trying to fit in
0: orally, I guess. When did you settle on your voice now? When did you feel your voice became your own my
1: poetry voice or my real voice i mean my actual
0: no your real voice your actual voice
1: probably university actually my parents used to say they would call the house where me and i live with my friends sacra and kate in our last year and they couldn't tell which of us was speaking and i think we kind of created our own accent between us so kate has manchester roots and sacra grew up in nottingham and then I'd grown up everywhere and I think between us we found a <laughs> an accent so nobody could tell us apart, which was
0: great. <laughs> oh no, Fiona's not here. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cunning. Do you still find yourself leaning towards other people's accents when you're in their company? I know it's a very female thing to do anyway, but...
1: Yeah, I have to be careful because some of my very good friends here are very Devon and have lived in Thorveton all their lives and... Um, I love hearing little phrases that they say, like, um, when the dog runs off, where's she at? Or where's her at? Or where's her to? And I have to be careful not to kind of say it back in their, in their accent, because that would be rude. <laughs> um, but it's lovely. The Devon Burr is lovely. Yeah, I think it's very easy to pick up accents. But I also feel my mother always said I'd she didn't trust anybody who changed her accent, and she's always held on tight to her Scottish accent so I've always felt a kind of restraint on not picking up accents, but it it is quite difficult, especially um when I lived in Scotland. yeah, it was difficult not to pick pick it up and say it back.
0: How is that shown if at all in your poetry? Does your poetry voice have a hold still? Or does that shift too?
1: Hmm. That's interesting. You know, although I said earlier, do you mean my real voice or my poetry voice? Actually, I think of my the voice I write in as my real voice. It's where I'm not holding back and where I give myself permission to say anything that I need to say. So I think of that really as my kind of authentic voice without the hesitations or apologies that maybe we've been taught culturally to insert to protect ourselves. Um, But I think I am very interested in the way that poetry can invite voices in. So I do do quite a lot of, I suppose you call them dramatic monologues, using other people's speech in my poetry. I don't know if that's accent exactly. I feel like it's more, more to do with opening your Poetry is a space for those voices and those things that need to be expressed rather than kind of accent is something in a way that's it's quite on top of the language. Although, you know, then you start getting into dialect, which goes much deeper, doesn't it? But underneath that all, I think there's a kind of deeper language going on that we all understand and speak in. And I think that's where hopefully poetry resides.
0: And when those voices come to you, where do they appear from? Do you overhear things or, or is it simply on your own you hear the voice arrive? I do
1: feel visited by voices sometimes. I think um, when I'm writing I try and leave the ego out of it and I think that can create a kind of blank page or open space for other voices to come in. I think I've, uh, in my poems, there have been some frightening voices speaking and i have let them do that hoping that they will reveal themselves in their true violence could you give us some examples uh, so i wrote a sequence about zeus which was about domestic violence and rape and i i used the voice of zeus as a kind of overbearing aggressive male voice. He speaks on the page in capitals. And um, I use that to kind of expose that kind of aggression and the kind of
0: voices I heard it. And there must be, I guess, counter to that, sweeter voices, softer voices. Um, Do you associate yourself more with that? Or is that too easy to say? Does the ego gravitate towards that?
1: I think that is a bit easy to say. I think when I think of my own voice in poetry, I think it's quite a direct, I hope it's a direct voice. I think I try to be as direct and accessible as possible. So it's not necessarily soft. I think, um,
0: I don't know really. Sorry, Laura, that's quite a hard question. No, no, no. no. It was a woolly question in a way. Um, I'm just wondering, I'm interested in what you said about getting the ego out of the way, really, is is kind of what I was leading to and, and how you go about that. And, when you realise that, I suppose, there was a distinct moment in in your writing life when you realised that you'd step past your ego or found a way to step past it.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, Sharon Olds has this amazing essay in the Paris Review. It was uh, done a long time ago now. Well, it's not an essay, sorry. She has an amazing interview in the Paris Review. She talks about not caring about what you look like in a poem, and I think that's really important, actually. So the eye of the poem, you shouldn't worry how people are going to think about that eye, whether they're going to judge it in any way. or. And I think um, kind of discarding that defensiveness over self-image and being as raw and true as you can be to your own experiences or to the experiences you're writing about is really important. So I think it is a learning process because I think it's very difficult because in this society we're we're always trying to present our best face aren't we and it it can make you feel very vulnerable to show yourself without airbrushing so i have a poem about the postnatal body for example which is all about kind of my own self disgust <laughs> my body after having given birth and you know covered in stretch marks and expanded but then, it, I mean, the poem worked its way through to a kind of celebration of that and a celebration of everything my body had managed to do in housing my daughter. So, yeah, but I think that kind of honesty of gaze is something really important and it does make you vulnerable. But I think everybody is vulnerable and, um, you know, this secret, our secret lives, the lives where we're not on show all the time, I think they're... What's really important in, in poetry, that kind of secret
0: self and all the shames and glories that go with that. You mentioned the directness of your poetry, which I think is really true, but how, how do you think that affects a rhythm or shows itself rhythmically?
1: Yeah, um, well, rhythm's really important in my poetry. I think there's all sorts of things feeding into that, actually. I think I'm kind of quite drawn to older vocabulary like Anglo-Saxon sourced vocabulary rather than Latinate, although not always. I think poetry should use everything it's got available. Um, But I think with that comes a kind of tradition that's very rhythmical. So uh, from the start, you know, people always ask you in readings, why don't you rhyme? But rhythm has always been far more present You know, rhyme is quite a modern invention. It came in with the Latinate languages. It wasn't a feature of old English poetry, but old English poetry is very rhythmic and very alliterative. And I think I've inherited some of that. That sounds grandiose. No, not at all. (laughs) I just mean I'm attracted to that kind of sound. And that's what I've... That's often what my poetry draws on, those kind of sound sources and rhythms. But also it's a tool when I'm drafting. So when I'm writing a poem to begin with, it's just kind of incohesive notes. And then I start pulling it out and that's a process. So I start kind of bringing out the bits that I'm interested in or that have energy in developing those. And that's a process of listening. And you're listening firstly to the language and the energy of the poem where that kind of intensity of language is centering. But then as you draft on, you're also, I mean, maybe even from the start, you're listening for rhythm to help you draft what kind of lines you're writing and what kind of form the poem is taking as so you're listening as the rhythm emerges to what the form of the poem is going to be and how the language wants to exist, whether it wants to rush or be slow.
0: Or... You said about the Anglo-Saxon rhythm and the Latinate rhythm. How has rhythm shifted culturally do you think in your lifetime because rhythm must change with you know the boom in technology even in the last sort of 40 years or so has that affected your rhythm do you think?
1: Well I don't know I think it's still language I think people are incredibly inventive with um, text messages and those kind of short spaces of language um, but I think rhythms we speak in i mean english is an accented language it has rhythm built into it so i think the ways that we speak are still very rhythmic and i'm not sure that that's been affected i still hear the same rhythms i guess as i did 20 years ago you know we used to when we were teaching we sometimes used to send our students out to collect examples of iambic pentameter in everyday speech and you can still do that (laughs) that hasn't changed
0: i'm really interested looking at your life and the fact that you were moving around so much and going to boarding school, the influence of being part of an RAF household, how much sort of institutionalized rhythm has, has shaped your life and how much is you sort of, you settled in a village in a very sort of rural part of the country? I think about the Devon accent and it's got that softness. It seems very at odds with how you grew up to me. Is that too easy you know, an assumption? No, or? it
1: isn't, it isn't. I think my favourite REF camp was in Bracknell and it was, we were there for nine months and it was, I mean, REF camps can be, in a way, paradise for kids because you can go out because they're heavily guarded by men with big guns. So <laughs> so um, we had, in Bracknell in particular, it was a very green camp and we had a lot of freedom and we used to go and play as children in the woods and there were all these rhododendrons in Bracknell, which you know they have those beautiful magenta flowers and we and you can crawl up inside them and make dens in them they're hollow so you know those 9 months in Bracknell were quite formative there was also lots of wildlife around like there were the, a fox used to steal shoes on on the base and um there was a big pond and i remember my mum showing me uh, newts in the pond so it was a very green setting and i think that's what I wanted for my children. I wanted somewhere where they could be in touch with the outside world. And I do love that about where I live. It's, um, you know, we're saying it's rural, but it's it's really at the heart of a very strong farming community. So almost all of Isla's friends at school have got roots in the farming community or are either children of farmers or have had grandparents work on the farms or are connected in some way, like their preschool teacher is also a dairy farmer. She's the wife of a dairy farmer and she brings up the cows. And, you know, we're just surrounded by those kind of rhythms. So, you know, you can tell when tractors are going to be heavy because it's harvest time and you can't get anywhere. And it's very noisy past my window. And I love that. And I think I'm also, I'm a bit of a sucker for, especially in the winter, the kind of um, festivals that mark the winter, like bonfire night and all the Christmas stuff and then Valentine's Day. And I just... And Lent, and I love all of it because it kind of, especially uh, in the winter, because I find the winter quite hard with its lack of light. And I love those things that kind of punctuate it with little bits of light all along, all through. And they're a way of keeping time, aren't they? And a way of moving towards spring. And what about boarding school? What imprint did that leave on you? Uh, (laughs) I think education has been a safe place for me, always. Boarding school, it had a very very clear structure. You know, there was no breaking out of it ever. The rhythm of terms was always very important because it's a bigger thing, I think. It's more of a break if you're at boarding school because then, you know, at the end of the term you're going home to a completely different environment. So that probably remains with me, that sense of the school term sometimes in ways I don't enjoy like I feel sometimes like oh I'm never going to be free of the kind of tyranny of the school term because you know I was either in university for years and years and years after boarding school and then and then now I have children and you're back in that
0: kind of being locked into the school term. I'm just going to double back because one of the things you were talking about was was nature and harvest and the the year and marking the year um, and I was reading some of your new book um and how you've done the Love Songs to Insects. Can you tell me how they came about? Because they're glorious, glorious poems. Why did you want to study something so minute and so up close? Well, first of
1: all, I think I've always been interested in um, the nature around us and the creatures around us. And um, you don't actually have that many encounters with mammals in our country. Like I saw a hedgehog last year and that was a huge event. I got everybody out into the garden and we all had a good stare and it kind of sat there with its head in the bushes and pretended we weren't there. But insects are around us all the time. And there had been a lot of information in the news about the decline of insects, which is actually really frightening. There are thousands of insects that are all integral to our ecosystem. And that if we lose them, we're going to be stuffed, basically. I mean, it affects everything. So I was kind of really interested in that. I mean, insects are fascinating because they go through all these weird metamorphoses and... Although they are so familiar to us, they're also so unfamiliar to us. Like, we don't know them in all their different stages of life because we're a bit squeamish about it. It's
0: all quite unknown to us. So, there was lots to discover. Which one had the most distinctive rhythm to you? I know there's the, there's the mosquito, and you talk about the whine of it, obviously, but I was intrigued more by things like glowworms, you know, more unexpected creatures that don't necessarily sound as um, immediately audible.
1: Yeah, glowworms are lovely, aren't they? They have very quiet lives. Actually, they're massive predators too. they no, don't when tell me that. i sorry. <laughs> they're gentle creatures. <laughs> no, when they're larvae, <laughs> they go around sucking the juices out of snails and slugs. But, uh, oh, it's over a good the glowworms now. <laughs> I mean, the rhythms in those poems are all, they're all quite different. So the mayfly mm. has quite, um, that has a very short line with like a couple of stresses in the lines and it's um, kind of quite, Skittery, I think, quite skittery mm. and brief. And then the glowworms is a five-beat line, which I think I think of more as a pulse. So you know, we talk in English about iambic pentameter, but actually, it's not as regulated as that, and never has been. Like even Shakespeare wildly varied his line. Um, so I think it's more interesting to think about it as a body rhythm, like a pulse. Yeah, glowworms is it is quite a gentle poem. I think that might be why you like it, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> Um, And it has that kind of five beat line, which can take its time and be gentle. So there's also this idea with rhythm in poetry that if you have um, an uneven number of stresses in the line, it invites a pause at the end of the line. So the female born again with little changed, except she has no mouth and may not eat. So it kind of invites that pause. Whereas if you have a four beat line, it encourages you to run over more quickly so that pause isn't built into the rhythm of the poem as it is with an even number of stresses and I have no idea why that happens but it does happen if you uh, kind of just go da 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 it makes you want to rush on whereas da 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 makes you want to pause it's kind of one of the magics of
0: rhythm I'm just wondering whether you you do look at what you're doing and think it's there's something very alchemical about it or magical about it yeah again you're leading me on to sound like a loony i i should say uh, poetry to me is is the you know finest art form so i'm slightly in awe (laughs) of what you do i'm just wondering how it feels to you when you're doing it
1: so it does feel magical when when a poem feels like it i mean it does feel sometimes like it's writing itself and that you're just having to tune in to what it wants to say I think it's also, we forget how closely related poetry has always been to song and to prayer and to spells. You know, we've always used language to summon the other worlds. And I think poetry is a place where that can happen. You know, whether it's somebody else's, just, you know, reading a poem and being in somebody else's body for a minute or kind of inviting these other voices into the poem, I do think it is a kind of space of spell and incantation and all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah, when it's going well, it does feel like magic. But then once you're out of that magic of writing, I mean, I love the creative part. I love actually being in the process of writing a poem and being caught up in that, that level of concentration and being caught up in that music of it because words do have a music and that is one of the primary tools when you're writing a poem is using language as music. But once you're out of that space and you you kind of get a bit of distance on it, it can be terribly disappointing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm, I always have the kind of post-book blues and disappointment and because the magic is so enthralling and then once you're beyond it, and you see, maybe with clearer eyes, what you've actually written, and it never feels good enough. But
0: yeah. Do you then come back around and maybe another six months, a year down the line, actually have a, a new tenderness for what you've written?
1: That would be nice, wouldn't it? Let's hope so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: So this is Almond Blossom. This morning, love, I'm tired and grave. I can barely hear the wintered bird's small song Over the hum of the central heating. We must trust, I suppose, to the song's bare minim, That spring will be a green havoc As the trees burst their slums, And the dirt breaks open to admit crocus-spear and cyclamen and though we can't yet feel it, Earth's already begun her slow incline, inch by ruined inch,
0: easing you back
1: from the brink.
0: At what point in your life did you? declare yourself a poet or did you first describe yourself as a poet? God, this
1: is a really funny question in poetry circles. People people are really coy about it. Like I remember Don Patterson saying, oh, you can't call yourself a poet. Somebody else has to call you a poet. That's bollocks, isn't it? If you're a plumber, you don't go around saying, oh, I can't call myself a plumber, but I have fixed a few toilets in my time. I mean, it's just I mean that's part of the self-regard I think I think that's quite dangerous to think that being a poet is special it's not you're just you've got one craft that you're working with it's no different to anything else and if that's what you do then that you know that's your job title it's your job description there's nothing it, yeah
0: <laughs> that that sort of leads us back to Heaney and digging really doesn't it because yeah it right we're talking about yeah. Right.
1: Dad uses a spade and I use a pen. Yeah, exactly. Like I mean I do tend to say though when people ask me what I do I tend to say I'm a writer which is a bit evasive because poetry always gets a big reaction and then the next question is always oh have you been published? Which <laughs> seems strange. Like you don't if somebody says you're an accountant you don't say to them oh, done any accounts lately. It's just, it's just this strange yeah cultural thing around this that people kind of give it a specialness it doesn't have and then because it's got that they want you to justify claiming it as a job title I mean it's nonsense it's just what you do isn't it
0: so at what point did it become what you do and you um, and you embrace that yeah that was quite um that was
1: quite a tricky path for me actually so um when I was younger at school I wanted to be a writer. Uh, I wrote in my yearbook that I wanted to live in the woods and have lots of children and dogs and write. <laughs> so, I'm, you know, apart from the woods, <laughs> I'm almost there. But um, then at university, I, f- I felt, you know, I went... I'm the first generation to go to university in my family, although my mum did a teaching diploma. She's a primary school teacher. My dad left school at, as soon as he hit his 17th birthday into the REF. So we are the first generation to go to university. And I went to Oxford and... um found it incredibly intimidating so everybody seemed cleverer than me and i'm realizing in part that that was a social thing they'd come from different backgrounds maybe you know more um steeped in you know like one of my friends was the son of a journalist for example but it's taken me a long way time to realize that and i also felt just that i didn't have anything to add you know we we were studying all these amazing writers And I think that gave me an incredible grounding, but it also made me feel very, very small indeed. And there wasn't the same infrastructure for young writers then as there is now. So um, at Oxford, there was one creative writing course that you could do, one course in poetry. It lasted a term and it was eight sessions with Craig Raine. And they were amazing. And he was incredibly kind to me, but I didn't believe him. (laughs) Yeah. I just had a complete lack of confidence. So then what I decided to do was become an actress, (laughs) which was stupid because I'm very shy and I don't really like being up on stage, but it felt like a way to exist in language. You know, when you're an art student, there aren't that many obvious routes. Like I've come across lots of people now who work in radio and I think, why didn't anybody tell me? I could go and be do words in radio, for heaven's sake. Like, I didn't know what was open to me. So I wanted to be an actress and I applied to drama school for several years and failed and failed to get in because I'm a very stooped, shy person and they saw straight through me. (laughs) Um, So there was a lot of failure and actually, although I'm joking about it now, it was a very hard time in my life, like, not knowing what I was doing. But all the time I was writing and I was writing... I was writing poems and um, it was an incredibly hard time in my life. I was very unwell and um, and poetry kind of helped me through that. And so gradually I just became more and more committed to it and began to see it as possible again in a way that I hadn't for a while. And then then, uh, eventually I got myself onto the master's course in St Andrews and it just... Just everything felt right. It, you know, it all kind of started coming together. Like, my whole life was being healed at that point, I think.
0: Did it become easy once you'd left your master's? Did you still feel you were absolutely on the right track, on the right channel? Yeah,
1: after my master's, I, um, I did a PhD. I did an academic PhD. Um, so my plan was to teach literature and write poetry on the side. But poetry wasn't having that and uh, (laughs) I practically had a nervous breakdown I did some uh, maternity cover yeah I really struggled because there just wasn't the space I needed to write and read and think
0: so yeah
1: yeah I've just been I've just been compelled I think.
0: I'm really interested in what you just said about that time when you were trying to combine teaching and academia with being a poet and po- poetry wasn't having it um and you talked about the space you need what do the what's the rhythm of your day, and how much of it is spent thinking, how much of it is spent writing, how much of it is spent reading that rhythm has
1: yeah just isn't there at the moment, so um because of the pandemic, the schools are shut, so I have both children at home. I have two primary school aged children, so at the moment, our rhythm is very different, but there is a rhythm. So I take the mornings and I do the English teaching and the arty, science-y stuff with the children. And then my husband takes over at about two, three o'clock and does the maths. And at some point I try and get outside for a walk or a run and um, try and do my writing. But I miss reading, actually. I'm not having... Although I'm making sure that I have at least an hour to write... I don't have the same amount of time for reading, which I'm
0: really missing. And in non COVID times you you require that space.
1: Yeah, I usually so I usually take the girls to school and then go for a walk. I mean that's interesting when you think about rhythm. I think that can be a place where poems start happening on a walk or a run and I think it is something to do with kind of being immersed in the green worlds and also being that kind of rhythm that's going on when you're walking or you're running. So that is sometimes where things come um, and it is part of my practice to go for a walk and then maybe come back and write for a bit and draft later. I that, There is another rhythm to that in that I always start with free writing so there's a kind of warm-up that goes on before I, before I work on
0: any actual poems. So the free writing is just you writing sentences that occur to you, words that occur to you? Yeah, sometimes
1: sometimes there's something I want to write about, and that's when I kind of attack it. As you know, Laura, you must do free writing, but um, the free write is uh, where you're just trying not to edit yourself. So you're just—it's the kind of idea of putting down your first thoughts. Ted Hughes called it trying to dodge the inner policeman. Uh, so trying to get past received language or taboos or any barriers you have up to a way of fresh speaking about things. Yeah, I think it's the most important tool.
0: Fiona, how much faith do you put in the seasons, their ability to to carry you forward, their own rhythms, and how they can provide solace and look after your own well-being?
1: I've been thinking about that a lot, Laura, (laughs) lately. I've been thinking about how little faith... I have. I think I'm a (laughs) non-believer and that's really hard. I think I go into winter and I just can't believe that spring will happen. I mean, we talk about it as a miracle, but I think there are parts of winter where you just, you can't imagine that anything will ever be any different than this darkness and coldness and the mud, the constant mud down in Devon. It's just terrible. Awful, and I've been I've been writing about it. I've been writing about um, how faithless I am, and maybe we all are a bit. I think you know it is a little death this winter, and we the spring is such an amazing thing, and I think it's so hard to believe in sometimes, and yet looking out my window you know, there are crocuses and primroses all of a sudden. I was looking at some photos of the summer and I just couldn't believe that that color was in my garden. I just, I couldn't grasp, grasp that that had happened, let alone would happen again. (laughs) That miracle seems beyond my imagination. I think I have a severe failure of imagination and faith in the winter. And I think I'm not alone in that.
0: Toast Podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, and produced by Jeff Bird. The music for this series is by Laura James. Toast is a British clothing and lifestyle brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life. To hear more episodes from this and former series, head to Toast Magazine, which can be found at www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.